At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil. Capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher. As a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live. Yowza! Gordon White materialized at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Animistic. He shared what animism is and what it's not. How does animism relate to magic and how can it provide a novel way of connecting with the renewing energies of the universe? It's time for a new metaphysical language and vision of reality before materialism and other outdated models of interacting with reality turn humanity into ashes. We also discuss our presentations and activities for the Astronosis Conference at the end of this week. Tickets are available, and you can now get tickets for online streaming. Only about 50 left since I put a limit so as not to overburden the conference's Wi-Fi. So get them while they last. Truly hope to see you there in the Cancun area, in person or remotely. There will be a replay for all ticket buyers. As a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include my past interview with Gordon on Starships, the perfect bookmark and compliment for this interview. And thank you as always for those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria. You are amazing, and your support, company, and feedback help grow this Gnostic heresy. There will be a longer pause than usual in between shows, as astronosis drains all oxygen. No longer than eight days or so, though. 
But after, we'll have incredible content with episodes on Swedenborg, the roles of the devil in religion and music, the Illuminati, Atlantis, and so much more. Just in time for all these topics. We need Gnosis more than ever, you see. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or many of my guests and their unique insights, anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Let us to our latest AB Live. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. What's this war in the heart of nature? Why does nature vie with itself? The land contend with the sea. Is there an avenging power in nature? Not one power, but two. Wish I could make you see this brightness. Don't worry. All is well. All is so perfectly, damnably well. I understand now that boundaries between noise and sound are conventions. All boundaries are conventions waiting to be transcended. One may transcend any convention if only one can first conceive of doing so. In moments like this, I can feel your heart beating as clearly as I feel my own. And I know that separation is an illusion. My life extends far beyond the limitations of me. So welcome, everybody. I don't want to get on a rant too much. Uh, it is an honor, as always, to have Gordon White, my friend and an individual I admire very much, to discuss his new book, which I have loved, Animistic Encounters with the Living Cosmos. Gordon, thanks for being here again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing you later this week, which is amazing. What an amazing thing to say. It is. It is. It's going to be incredible. Uh, it's always it's great to have friends on the Internet, but when you meet people face-to-face and you can interact with them, that's when the the magic really starts to happen. So it's great to do these things. I know you're working with Greg to do something in June. So the more of these we can do, I think the more we can really accelerate the magic, the gnosis, don't you think, Gordon? Yeah, this is how we make changes at the level of the field. And it, it's, it's always been that. It's always been ceremony. It's always been people coming together in coherence. That's what it is. It is indeed. And with us, it's always great to have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, just fine with this uh, daylight savings time. 
So <laughs> I managed to make it anyway. And we're going to talk about time tonight, aren't we? Yeah. And I think that's a good idea because again, in my, I was like kicking myself today in my Cartesian ways going, you know, in seven days, we'll be having this cocktail party after the conference in this really nice place and sort of playing it forward. I'm like, Oh my God, that goes against Gordon's book completely. This <laughs> In seven days, I'll be doing this and this and that instead of uh today is the only day that matters today i die at the end of the day so yeah but what are you gonna do what are you gonna do that's why your book was so it's so good so uh for the audience as you come into the chat if you have questions as always please type them in questions uh caps and uh, we will get to them super chats will get pushed to the top uh let's keep it on the topics of non uh topics that don't piss off the algorithm since this is live and i've spent <laughs> enough time i have spent uh, enough time in youtube jail so there are uh, fewer and fewer of them with each day but you know, we'll, we'll do I, know our best. I know i know because at the end of the introduction i was gonna say oh and that spoof you see from the cable guy that's also based on uh i think it's what midnight express written by oliver stone then i'm oh crap if oh, i true. say oliver stone I could That's get too much. You know, we yeah, we yeah, might get yeah. suspended because his movies are getting suspended from YouTube too, his Ukraine film. So it's like, what do you say? What do you say? <laughs> I don't know. Um, you you need to do, be doing more like I'm doing. Everything that goes up to YouTube goes up to Rumble and Odyssey as well. Just gotta gotta have that lifeboat. No, I do have it. Yeah, everything for the <laughs> audience. Yeah. Every video goes to Odyssey, and also I do Rockfin too. So uh, uh, yeah, it is there yeah. just in case uh, it gets banned or anything like that, which has happened. But um, yeah. these are the times we live. But anyway, this is so much. I mean, this is eternal. This is much better than all the temporary shit that's going on today. But kind of relevant, I wanted to ask you, Gordon. Uh, I like a friend was asking me, well, what's going on? And, you know, I'm talking to family and they're even the most skeptical ones are starting to buy into the whole simulation because they can't, they still think that somehow we're going to get back to 2019 and mm -hmm. everybody's jaws is collectively like dropping, like it just keeps. And I was the one, you know, two years a year ago, I said, oh, the next one's going to be a war or a cyber attack, the UFO. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like the, our, our lizard overlords are just had too much sugar and they're at the consoles of the simulation. Like, <laughs> so well, what, they're losing. What, what, went, what went wrong or what's going on that time has just gotten so bonkers? It's, it's an end of an empire. They're losing. And, and so one of the things when you step into a living universe, just to sort of bring it almost to the book, is um, you have frameworks of understanding for this. And we actually used to have them before we hit the Enlightenment and replaced an idea of living time with just one damn thing after another pointing off into an Enlightenment future, right? which is just stupid. Um, and we didn't actually get far along that journey before realizing it was stupid. So quantum theory, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, But we're not allowed to say that this is the end of the West, because that can't exist in this kind of like capitalist optimist modernism where things can only get better, which was Tony Blair's campaign song, right? Like just to give you an indication of <laughs> um, how wrong uh, such an idea is. And, and we, we have this in the Bible. We have this around the world. We have an idea that, um, and it's sort of my first book, that 
um, human cultures and lifeways can complexify and decomplexify rapidly. And the story of the next decade, and it doesn't matter if it's the shortages or if it's widespread illness or if it is, which it's going to be um, in about 18 months' time, proper war, this is the decade where the Western Empire ends um, and, and is replaced by some sort of Eurasian multipolar however you want it. And it's it's not a good news story and it's not a bad news story. It's just what happens, right? Um, because there's there'll be some things we lose and, so, and a lot of things we lose <laughs> and there'll be some things that the world gains from it. And it's just, I open chaos protocols with like a Terence McKenna-ism, which is like the problem isn't to find the answer, it's to face the answer. And um, people don't want to do that because um, it's scary. And, and And the actual underlying belief system they've never moved out of which is this capitalist modernist idea, um, is what is um, ending. And so people are like, they think their worldview is up here, but it's actually being, that up here is what they have purchased and moved into inside this kind of capitalist modernist one. And that's the one that's ending and they don't know what to do about it other than lose their fucking minds. Indeed. And I think your book is definitely timely because I think you offer a lot of solutions and basically what you're saying, uh, radical solutions on how you view nature, time, uh, resources, how we got here and how just a lot of good solutions. how did you? How did you decide to write Annie Mystic? Uh, is it? I, it's a companion to Starships, right? I mean, I think. Yeah, and I, wait, I want to so, say spiritual successor or sequel because I've always wanted to say that live, but no. No, that's cool. <laughs> Here's what I think, anyway, because I don't know. Like, I just work here, and um, <laughs> Starships had a separate, had a, had a different title, um, and then and then it became Star Dot Ships, and that worked because it was everything. It worked on at least three layers that I wanted. Starships, because it is about sky spirits and so on, and star dot ships, because it is about navigation uh, and so on. And it's a Nicki Minaj reference, right? So um, it did at least three things that I like to do. But it's kind of, as I write this one, it occurs to me, okay, so Starships is my story of the past, and Animistic is my story of the present. And I'm writing a dot trilogy and no spoilers, but you can probably work out what the next one is, right? And I didn't realize that's what was happening. And um, and this is a story of re-embodiment in the present and re-presencing because re-embodiment is re-temporalization, which is why I'm speaking about Indigenous time uh, next week in Mexico. And it's, it's, a, it's really fun, actually, to use additional research that didn't make it into the book to kind of elaborate on some animistic-style themes in that context. But it was just sort of, literally, it was time. And it was time in the sense that I've been down here on this little farm for four years in, in Tasmania. And writing a book about animism means you have to hit the problems with the word. You have to hit the problems with the idea of books being a true way of conveying information in the first place and all these other things. So it sort of co-emerged um, if, like with encounters between myself and place. So each chapter is actually about a place and it's it's sort of unstructured as a book. And that had to happen in this like embodied and, and, and temporalized space. So it was... 
just trying to solve something for myself, which is, and I'm partially to blame for the popularity of the, the word animism amongst magical users over the last few years, partially to blame, particularly because Sarah Lawless came on like my second or third episode of the podcast and we had a good chat about it then. And it kind of grew with the podcast itself. Um, and it's a dangerous word. And so I wanted to sit with that because people with the right best will in the world will will say, oh, I'm an animist because they mean real nice things. Like, um, I believe in extension of personhood to rivers and trees and, and all the rest of it. And there's understanding that we definitely aren't living right, you know. But the trouble is the word came from a, a very violent imperial process of right. Europeans expanding out into the world. And it was a pejorative. Like, it, we used, we called animists um, people, brown people, who we thought had a really childlike theory of mind who like couldn't tell the difference between their dreams and reality. And what I've been struck by in the book, and I've said this before, but it's important, is um, it's like that Skinner meme, uh, like it is the children who are wrong. Um, like it turns out we were the ones with the childish and naive theory of mind for thinking that thoughts exist only in the brain and are unattached to reality and so on. So here is this, the world's history's stupidest ever theory of mind leaves Europe in the mid-1800s and spreads out around the world encountering some of the oldest and most profound cosmovisions on earth, like in Aboriginal Australia and Amazonia and so on, and says they're primitive and childlike. And I'm just really struck by the Skinner meanness of it all, right? And, and so if you use that A word, you have to grapple with it being uh, like it originating in a kind of violence that we are still in different ways, obviously, still subject to, uh, like at this point in the timeline. We are, the, this project, this Western project that's ending this decade began with that same thinking that gave us that A word. And so there's like, um, it's meaty and it still has a lot of energy, but you need to kind of, you can, need to kind of know that moving forward. I think people maybe wanted it to be, well, uh, the, the response has been universally positive. Maybe they were expecting like, and this is a tree spirit, and this is a dolphin spirit. But actually, it's um, you are caught in a haunted library of racist ideas that is destroying you and the world. So it's a uh, it's Gnostic animism in its own way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, uh, and you you talk about the 18th century. What do you think of like Oswald Spengler's idea that this is a Faustian culture that started probably around the 11th century? And it's we've been through. It's a millennia of just this Faustian destruction. Do you think? Have you heard of that, Gordon? Or and we'll yeah, have something I have. else. I have. So there's there's two things, right? Like I use the um, the Hemingway. How did you go bankrupt slowly at first, then all at once? Because there's some, some stuff that Europe inherited from Greeks from Greek culture that I think is erroneous. And it's, it's there in Gnosticism, but I, I think it's erroneous. Um, and principally among them, it's the idea that the sacred is far from the physical, um, which we inherited into Christianity and, and it reorganized culture. But we also did that. We built a culture around the idea that there is one true book so that books convey true things. But more importantly than that, you can actually say, this is a true book and this is a fake book. And both of these are like dumb ideas. Um, and so the, the, this date with destiny was set in like 500 BC, one way or the other, right? Uh, and, and along the way, there are different encounters. And what Richard Tanas in The Passion of the Western Mind, I think, describes mm -hmm. the, it's a multi-phase project of cosmological and, uh, estrangement, right? So Copernicus decentered our universe and Descartes trapped us in our head. So it's this idea that it wasn't, 
the enlightenment is a big part of what necessarily I rail against, but maybe what I illuminate in this book, because it's the enlightenment project that has done the most damage to the more than human world. So that's the specific, like it, it, it wasn't just everything was fine. Then we hit the enlightenment. It was um, because you're dealing with a living cosmos. You have to, you have to focus more on the worldview that allows for imperialism, because with that comes empty maps and, and terra nullius and all these terms, which is to say like these brown people not only have childish beliefs, but because they didn't use the land, um, that land is available for European conquest and, and, and all this kind of stuff. But I agree completely. Like there's, um, it is, it's a, it's a longer journey of our, our, uh, our estrangement. And I, this is kind of like coming back to what's going on in the world at the moment, we're going to lose, well, millions of lives, but also, we're going to lose a lot in between now and the early 2030s, but there, we're going to lose some stuff that needs to go away. Um, and, and so this is that kind of process. And you step into a living time framework, a living universe, and and you have ways to think with that. So in, in my healing tradition, it's called the Pachakuti, um, which so Pacha means space-time. It's where Pachamama is from. So it's the stuff of the cosmos. And Kuti is overturner. And the last Pachacuti was the arrival of the conquistadors and the Spanish into Peru um, and the destruction of, of the Inca world, right? And this Pachacuti is the end of the conquistadors. And so they would do, I, I gave a presentation at an astrology conference last year. I said, like, the Cairo were doing post-colonialism in, like, the 50s <laughs> before anyone else. And, mm. and so there's some stuff that is going away in this really dramatic process, which happens in a living universe that um, we can be happy to let go of. Awesome to hear. Yeah, for some reason, when I talked to John Michael Greer, he thinks, and I don't know why, but he feels that the next, you know, culture, which will be completely alien than anything we've known, I think animistic will probably, uh, is probably uh, predicting it. But for the reason, it's either going to be somewhere in Russia or Ohio. Of all places, well, Ohio it's always has specific. been, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know why. He, I think it's because of the valley and the rivers. That's how, you know, you got to do the geography, but whatever. We shall see, shall we? I don't know. And- I, I think my money's on my money's on South America. So I had a client oh. the other day who told me I hadn't heard this before, but he said South America is the continent of the future and always will be. Used to be a thing they said down there to kind of. I mean, it's not their fault that the American Empire kept collapsing every kind of government that tried to help them. That's a factor, right? Mm-hmm. And put all the Nazis down there and all the rest of it. Like they haven't had a good five hundred years of of a good clean run, but uh, there is a, like from a food and energy and everything else perspective, there are, there are fewer there. It's in a pretty good place. So I'm not sure where the Ohio thing comes from. I do believe like some sort of pan Eurasian stuff is going to come back over the next century, but I, you know, I wouldn't rule out South America yet. That's a, it's, there's another Cairo prophecy about, in the Pachacuti, the, um, the Eagle and the Condor will fly together again. And that's kind of, indicating the, the rise of South America and to kind of like fly with Turtle Island. So, you know, that's, mm-hmm. we may not be here for it, um, but it will be interesting to kind of look down and see. 
Yeah, we shall see in the sequel of Ender's Game. It's Brazil who's the great explorer of the universe. Uh, we shall see. It's fun to play with these things. Uh, yeah, and I think with animism, like you said, it's not just a it's not just a term. Uh, you quote Rupert Sheldrake, who says animism is both an archaic and new way to see the world. And I think what you're advocating is we really need to think in a new way the idea as you say of a of empiricism that we just we're just going to keep adding knowledge and we'll get animism we'll get gnosis we'll get ufos you're asking we need to change our thinking our language and that's what individuals like jung and jeff kripal keep saying no 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 owen barfield change your language change your thinking don't just try to add data to things yeah exactly and and so it reminds me, I like that what Dr. Sheldrake said, right? Because it reminds me of when Charles Eisenstein talks about a new and ancient story or um, or the ever-present origin, right? Because the idea, and this is where why the book is so, um, dare I say, unique in, in, in its structure and its material, is the idea of a past... As, as, a, as a sort of preceding sequence of events where maybe you can go back 5,000 years and find one, that is itself a product of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment basically gave us linear time because it needed to tell the story of the progression out of superstition into scientific enlightenment. So the trick with animism is like you're not going back to an ancient belief system. And I did a lot of work with Aboriginal Australian thought for this book. And it's one of the things they're quite um, urgently conveying is that, like, we're continually practicing cultures for 50,000 years, but we're not a 50,000-year-old culture. That's an Enlightenment European idea, right? So this ever-present origin or new and ancient story is that the kind of idea that you can step into that, you know, that perennial uh, cosmovision. And, and if you don't, if you try to think of it as something from the past, that you are replicating, then you haven't done it. That's the trick. You're still stuck in the Enlightenment framework. So uh, to get to animism, it's kind of like you can't be half pregnant, like you you have to step in or not. But that was literally why the book had to be structured that way, because if you tried to sequentially explain in an authoritative way in a book with academic footnotes what animism is, then you've missed it. You literally haven't done it because you've you've made it a dead thing to be pinned to a corkboard and hung in the natural history museum so uh it's yeah as i said the response has been quite good i think most people have hit the book and and encountered that which is great yeah i love it because it's non-linear it's personal but i kind of knew i said okay i know exactly i kind of knew what i was gonna because i've read starships and this was this was the stars in our past this is us going through earth through mother earth and experience it and finding new ways to perceive time and how you you know all the things that you've experienced that got you on this journey Uh, i love this quote by bruno latour that you quote and he says, we have never been modern. That stuck yeah. out to me. What does that mean? <laughs> so um, Bruno Latour is one of the kind of, I mean, he's still alive, but I think for my money, like very important late 20th century voices in that gap between like post-colonialism and what in anthropology became like the ontological term. But Bruno makes the point that the collection of claims about reality that underpin modernity are savage. 
um, and, and they are as primitive, and he uses this to be, you know, um, cheeky, as primitive as the ideas that we find, you know, savages in Africa believing, like, oh, they think that mask has a spirit in it. Yeah, well, we think that we can build ever more complex mechanical devices and live forever. Like, that's stupid. Um, and so he actually kind of, like, goes through the list of claims about reality that underpin modernity. And one of them is this belief that... Um, moderns have separated themselves from this process of savagery and superstition. That's a key one. So again, it's the Skinner meme. It's like it is the children who are wrong. But it, it, it's really important when you, um, when you, you, when you're going to situate yourself in relation to a thought term like animism that comes out of this erroneous modernity that thinks it's modern but isn't. It's part of the way out of the maze, right? It's to actually grapple with like, well, shit. Um, Animism, and I think I end the introduction by saying that, like animism might be a collection of archaisms, but so is everything else. So this whole idea of like, oh, these are these are primitive savage ideas from the past. It's like, yeah, everything is. That's not a differentiator. You still have to grapple with reality. Yeah, and it's kind of like, well, I mean, what's the old cliche? Uh, the Tao that can be described is not the Tao. The animism yeah. that can be described is not animism. <laughs> So, and let me quote this other great uh, part of your book so the audience can get a good gist of the ethos of your book. And you write, Gordon, what is required is not a revolution in energy efficiency, but a revolution of love, a fundamental shift in principles away from techno solutionism and materialist naturalism towards animism, toward the profound felt understanding of the relationality and interconnectedness of all things and i think that's brilliant and i had a vision of you know blue check saying we need to save the environment no you don't save the environment become the environment engage yeah. with the environment lose yourself in the environment that's how that's animism yeah so one of my favorite academics in this space professor tim ingold in aberdeen um, has this great presentation called there's no such thing as the environment um and, and there isn't, right? Because that's literally an artifact of a measuring process that comes out of it. Like, where do they begin and end? So there's there's some really important work about like, okay, so this particular bay here that might get migratory birds, like that's an environment we need to protect. It's like, okay, so where does it end? At the shore, three trees back from the shore, the seabed, um, it, and, and is it... And are they native to that environment if they're only there for 10 days of the year as they come back to, to like lay eggs or whatever? The, we overlay a machine on what is a, a universe that is a community of living beings. And out of that, and maybe when the heart is in the right place, it's easy for people to not see this or miss it. But um, and I'm really informed by Charles Eisenstein's work around like climate change here, where um, climate doesn't exist. So I joke that I'm like an animist, permaculturalist, climate denier in the sense that I literally <laughs> deny the existence of climate. Not that I don't think carbon dioxide contributes to warming. I mean, like, there's no such thing as climate. So they've they've used that word because their models didn't get the warming and everything that they wanted over the last 25 years. So they went from global warming to climate change, and then you're a climate change skeptic to you're a climate change denier to you're a climate denier. Like, they keep dropping the words off until they just become meaningless but the funny thing is they've landed on one where i'm like yeah that's that's me you've come back around to me again <laughs> i am a climate denier because there's no such thing as climate and it's and, and charles calls for that revolution of love because 
I remember being a kid and even before Greenpeace became horrible, but I remember being a kid and, and environmentalism in an Australian context happened here in Tasmania with a, a gay dentist named, um, like, well, Dr. Brown. And he was kayaking on a river system that we were about to dam. And he's like, this can't, we, we can't do this. And so that was in the early 70s and that was a big um, defining watershed moment in, in environmentalism and green politics in Australia. And it was local. So they, was st- so they stopped, Bob Brown stopped a dam on a river, called the Gordon River actually, but he stopped a dam on a river. Um, and, but now, and this is Charles's point, we're asked, and your president is asking you for democracy to pay extra for gas. But like, it's this abstract idea where blue checks in an urban context can like extract other resources to give to a diffuse idea rather than contribute to the restoration of a local river or something. So all everything in environmentalism, which used to be think global, act local, is now think global, pay the globalists. And <laughs> and that is not and, and it's also why it fails. So every time we're like, okay, this is and this is all crap, but it's the urgency is is sincere. Like you know, we've got nine years to save the world. Every time you boy who cries wolf that, things get worse and people listen less. So Charles's point is calling for a revolution of love where it's like, let's stop trying to fear and yell people into abstract change and, and assist them or help them into coming back to that. People don't want to destroy the woods out the front of their house. Like they literally don't. Uh, there, there are ways in that are animist. They're about coming back into relation with the beings around you. And, uh, and that, that's transformational. And, and people think, and this is, again, materialism rather than animism, but people think, well, that's too small. Well, the tr- bigness and thinking that the only things that are real or effective are big is what got us into this mess. That is techno-solutionism. And so the revolution of love is a revolution in learning again how to operate at the level of the field. So uh, I'm really excited, as you can tell, and passionate about, I guess, post-environmentalism, because that's the, I, I don't have another word for If people don't want to use the A word, we're going to have to put post in front of something else, and no one wants that. But uh, post-environmentalism or, or something, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, so much potential indeed. Uh... At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Vance, do you have a question or from the audience? Well, I've got a... um... I've got a couple of questions. People have been thinking a lot on the on the chat, but there's only a couple. <clears throat> um, I'll go with the most recent one uh, first. Oswald Spengler, he lives on our YouTube chat here again, uh, uh, says, uh, could, could you, yes, could you, Gordon, comment on the work of Paul Kingsnorth? Um, sure. I like there's a, especially in the last six months, um, I've been very happy. Again, we stray close to topics we can't talk about on the YouTubes. I've been very happy with him standing up for basic 
logic and DC when it comes to uh, life versus the technocratic idiocy that we've in. See, we can do this. We can talk about it without talking about it. Um, Very happy with that. And that is part of his longer arc of environmentalism and then post-environmentalism because he, and this happens to people, I think, in a in a British Isles context especially, maybe not, maybe it's everywhere, where you can kind of start with a concern for the local, and this is no insult really, for your local environment, and then kind of turn Tory and then kind of turn conservative. And so um, Paul's sort of ended up, and bless him because everyone should find their spirituality, has ended up like an Orthodox Christian, which comes with a, a sort of conservatism that I I'm not in full alignment with is is a polite way of saying it, but I'm, I'm happy for him. And I understand how he went from an alarmed declinism um, of the world to that, because orthodoxy is kind of the place people seem to go to who need a framework for reality. And in particular, reality is everything else. There's a whole bunch of stuff they don't like. Um, But in the last six months or so, when he's been talking about, our medical situation and how insane it is has been mostly good were it not for his like um, d- like vicious dismissal of the so-called conspiracy theorists who have been right all along. But in terms of it's like his original work's alignment with something like animistic, there is a more declinist, um, melancholy, um, glass half emptiness to King's North's work, which I still like. Then there is animism is, or animistic, it's still kind of chaos magic. Like it's actually more optimistic than people realize. I I actually want to move into Charles Fort's dominant of wider inclusions in witchcraft. I've said from the very beginning of my career, I want to be the guy in Ghostbusters from the EPA who opens up the containment facility. I've always wanted to be that. <laughs> and animistic is the story of like, let's live in this wild, broken place with weeds and and abundance and 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 this kind of like decentral love-based uh relationality rather than like and this is unfair to pull um like boohoo the polar bears or something that's just not um there there does need to be for it to be a spell um there does need to be more optimism and i get to the end of the book and thought wow like I maybe I was looking for the optimism for myself because I didn't <laughs> wasn't sure who was going to be in there. It's heavy topics. It's like imperialism and blah blah blah. And then I get to the end and go, I feel good. I feel good that the, I, I went through that journey. So that would that's a great question. Thank you. Um, animism like is a it's it's a, a way of thinking that not just the big world, but it can accommodate high weirdness. It can accommodate UFO archons. Uh, politics uh ghost spirits it can yeah. just it takes the whole uh e- ecosystem of high weirdness without a problem you you don't just have to live like in i don't know some hippie farm and deny everything no exactly and and that's kind of and i think that remember that's how we lived for mm-hmm. humans have been animists again leaving aside the challenge of the word we kind of know what i mean by that for 98% of the time we've been on earth. So it's not just our natural mode. Like we, we know how to do it. You watch kids and they are that, right? They're, they're in, and again, it doesn't mean that you have that naive childlike view of your own mind and thoughts, but they, they nevertheless have sometimes like a healthier experience of the inner and outer, right? 
um, which we drill out of them. That's just your imagination. Uh, and and it's not. It's like, uh, it's your imagination, right? So, yes, um, I agree. And also, although we don't, I wouldn't, in the book, I don't even let people use the word ecosystem because it is a machine term, like a system. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, the closest way of saying it is like, I don't animism is an ecosystemic view of the whole cosmos so that doesn't mean you have to yeah live in the jungle uh it, it means that archons and aliens and all this other stuff are beings in the kind of one of my favorite things that Ursula Le Guin said is the word for world is forest and so the cosmos is a jungle the cosmos is a rainforest and and there are beings in it um, is is it and that is archons that is demons that is angels that is and wherever you are that's true and as you pointed out, 90% of uh, cultures believe in evil spirits. Swedenborg yeah. believe in evil spirits. The positive hermeticists believed in evil spirits. And for the audience, if you want to know, the closest to animistic Gnosticism would have to be the Manichaeans, where everything was alive and everything. But uh, it, it's interesting you said about kids, because I was reading on that bed the other day your book, and my daughter comes, Ellie, she's six. Says, What's that book about? It's, I said, it's about animism. What's that? And I said, well, that everything is alive. And she said, well, Daddy, is your leg alive? I said, yeah. Well, Daddy, is the picture frame alive? I said, yeah. Well, how, can it, how come it can't move? I'm like, oh, you should, you should be sitting here on a Sunday night maybe next time. Get drilled oh, by the six-year-old. She can grow into the family business. Yeah, exactly exactly was there another question van sorry yeah sorry, i jumped off yeah occult fan our buddy nate oh hi says, nate i can't chat but hello nate yeah yep he's out there i can't type in chat yeah i'm saying he's i'm sure he says hello back and, uh, and he will in a minute um he'd like you to comment on the gg young material about gray aliens being the non-organic timeline i'm not super familiar with it but i i get the feel of that i really do um whatever they are is and a lot of people in ufology in the 20th century speculated that they were some kind of like ai or meat robot or what have you so my one experience with them was that they were very like artificial uh, and had that metallic taste uh, in like you've like you licked a circuit board um kind of experience <laughs> um so i don't i'm not familiar with the material but even if that's not exactly correct, it's certainly approximately like I res I know why she said that. Like I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people think that the uh, some of the alien species actually have some sort of uh, unity with what we call their ships. Uh, that they uh, become their ships. I've read accounts of that. So that reminds me of the things you're saying. You know about animism tonight. Well, I, it's just one of those fun things you can do when you, you play with time. That, and it's the one, the, the one that haunts me the most, quite literally, is what Whitley said in The Supernatural, Whitley Strieber with um, Jeff Kripal, is that an advanced civilization would have worked out a way of maintaining lossless communication with their dead, right? And funnily enough, we might have got there had there was some when spiritualism was big in the US in the late 1800s there were a couple of like um, politicians in Washington at the time they were advocating for government money to go into researching how we can do after death communication now if we'd done that we had 150 years you put the kind of money we put into the military industrial mm. complex into that can, and that would have been one of those strategic interventions you can make to accelerate 
a civilization to interplanetary because once you can do that you can like well get me the smart ones and and tell like let's work out how this tunnel between the worlds works and and so on so when it comes to speculating on on the kind of visitors and other beings out there in this cosmic rainforest yeah the ones that are kind of inseparable if you can do that you're you're kind of your relationship to matter changes completely and there are probably more efficient hybrid ways of being in the world for sure but just on a, even on our understanding of technology if you are a biological organism it is safer especially if you're doing interdimensional stuff to send a meat robot um or, or an ai like we we check out other planets with with robots first um, and so there's something that's an oversimplification but there's something in there's something in that there's something in like the, the grays being uh something technological yeah i've heard that a lot um miguel can i ask one more question from the audience here sure. um jc3d wants to know um what do the animists think if there are animists um, <laughs> think of the number one numbers are they alive he wants to know if their numbers are alive so it's actually quite a good question because everything that exists is some kind of alive um, but there are different levels of agency and personhood so if you think about it from say a pythagorean perspective that you can kind of have the, the numbers one to 10 being cosmological forces. Um, they're in that sense, they're alive. So like one is a thing uh, like so, but you wouldn't, it's an extra level of abstraction away from the kind of relationality you will find in what we call animist culture. So they won't come into relation with the number two necessarily, but two exists and is a power, right? So um, depends where you go. And also it depends on how far you want to stretch animism out, right? Because Dr. Sheldrake would say, based on his definition of animism, that the Pythagoreans were animists. Um, so in that case, yes. But in the way I mean it, which is more like literally seeing the universe as a rainforest, um, I, it, it's a power in the universe um, rather than this. So like rain Individual rainstorms can be beings, um, and rain is a power, and there might be a rain god. So it, there's there's a bit more nuance to it. Um, is is a good question, though. It is a good question indeed. And yeah, for for the audience, Nate, the occult fan, is actually going to do also a presentation at Astronosis this weekend. He's going to be doing on aeons and the gematria. Gordon's cool. presentation will be on borrowed light. And uh, yeah, can you give us a little teaser while I put the banner here, Gordon? Um, borrowed sunlight, specifically. Borrowed but it's sunlight, about, Yeah, it's about experiential time in a living cosmos. So it's basically indigenous frameworks of time and what they can teach us about how we get time wrong. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I've been putting it together. I mean, I should because it is due this week, the homework. But I've been putting it together today going like, oh, this is fun. This is going to be a fun talk. And I'm uh, looking forward to Nate's too. That'll also be good. Yeah, yeah. He always brings, yeah, he does some good research. And Vance uh, does some good research. What yours, tell us about yours, Vance. Well, Gnostic Euphoria is going to explore the commonality between Gnosticism and Gnostics and aliens, UFOs, and things like that. 
in, in which you will find out that one of the biggest UFO religions on the planet is Christianity. Oh, cool, cool. Good angles. Yeah, I'll be doing uh, Gnosticism and Stargates. I think it's been underreported, but the Gnostics were very much into some precise maps and Stargates. In fact, they were uh, a little teaser. Uh, both both Origin and Kelsas had these Gnostic star maps. So you go from this here, and you go to the Draco, and you go through Venus, and you can get out of the universe to the next dimension. Both are lost, but both. These guys were definitely foes of each other. They wouldn't, you yeah. know, it's not like one's lying to get it. You know, both were like, yeah, we both have these maps, but let's argue about these guys. So, uh, so that's uh, some good teasers on there for everybody. So, so please, if you can't make it and we already got about 50 people making it, hopefully more, you can stream online and uh, you'll get the whole thing. If you're busy on that Sunday or Monday or whatever, we will get a replay of Astronosis. So, very excited on this one and uh, look forward to your presentation, Gordon. I should mention too, you have, of course, again, you talk about the places you went and there's some things that make me laugh. I don't know, because uh, I'm weird, like something weird will keep me uh, laugh. But you talked about your uh, journey to Pompeii, not Pompeii. Okay. How do you pronounce it? <laughs> not, yeah. yeah. And you were talking about how there it's abundance of avocados and the humans don't eat them. They just throw them to the pigs. And you're like, yeah. imagine the millennials having a heart attack across in the yeah. United States. Like, ah, Australians eat more bananas like per capita, I believe than anywhere else. And so bananas have, you can't buy them on Ponape because the banana, banana trees are just growing everywhere. It's like, it's a, you can't, doesn't compute, right? If you need some bananas, Go and get some goddamn bananas. That's if you live there. If you don't live there, if you if you're visiting, it's like I can't get these things. And yes, <laughs> avocados were brought in as pig food about a hundred or so years ago. And again, once they're like mature, these trees don't need anything. It's a high rainfall environment and volcanic soil. It's not like you need to um, do anything to like fertilize them. And it's warm all year round, so they're just going to like keep dropping avocados. It's the most amazing thing. So, bananas and avocados are in every. Uh, fruit basket in Australia and are very expensive <laughs> and they're free in Ponape. Well, they're very low status in Ponape and it's just, the world is beautiful. It's, it's beautiful and crazy. Yeah. I can see right now by the end of the night, millennials will be on Twitter telling, uh, telling Biden to make Ponpe uh, part of NATO and protect it <laughs> exactly. and all that. And, and they, you know, and they'll be imagined they would be crushed if accidentally Putin invaded Iceland. Cause he used to make fun of, remember when that was like the destination for millennials for vacation. The, the, I never understood um, that. Is, yeah. It, well, it was all the, it was like game of Thrones and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, I, Iceland. Yeah. And also they had, you know how um, blue checks seem to think, even though people in the Nordics will tell you otherwise, that the Nordics are perfect and there's some sort of perfect social democracy, even though most of them are monarchies. Um, the the one that was like the standout was like, oh, Iceland. And and so it did everything right because it's like, oh, they have 100% renewable energy. And like, yeah, because it's just a volcano. Like you, yeah. you, can, do, you can do that. Geothermal energy, a, you can, yeah. Yeah, you can run a very small population on like the continuous upwelling uh, of geothermal energy. So it was, yeah, it was the, it was the place. And then they, they made Game of Thrones there and, and that was it for the Guardian readers. That was the place to go. 
uh humans are so funny but uh yeah back to your book uh the other part which i loved and i even told you about that is uh you were talking i remember what chapter but you're talking and then you have this really cool footnote and you said gnosticism could have only arisen in the desert i was like ah he nailed it that's always been my <laughs> suspicion and, and yeah. maybe you can share your th i mean with me I'll, I'll send i've always said the the portal between apocalyptical judaism and mystical judaism to classical gnosticism is paul that's pretty much been set what does paul do as soon as he has his conversion he goes to arabia for three years so yeah. he must have gone like you call this place of the illusion that will kill you where you have to go to just let go of everything yeah so i think and this is the case and it's not surprising so cultures that live in the Amazon think the world looks like a rainforest, mm -hmm. uh, right? Uh, but more than that, you actually get methods of navigating complexity out of Amazonian cosmovisions that you don't find anywhere else because they are in the most biodiverse place on Earth. Like we, I remember thinking when I went to on my first ayahuasca dieta that I like this idea of you go, getting away from it all. It's the opposite. It's more crowded than a New York subway. Like it, you're just surrounded <laughs> by beings. And at night, it is so loud. I had earplugs in like I was under the Heathrow. Really? Wonderful. Right? Now, um, so Cosmovisions are humans express. That's one of the things we do. We are actually kind of like filters and, and expressive mechanisms. And we do it through ceremony and art and everything of other beings and, and what's around us. Like I've had conversations with trees where it's like, well, of course I'm using your mouth. I don't have one, idiot, <laughs> right? Um, and so we, there's this kind of like flow model understanding when it comes to cosmovisions. And in the case of Gnosticism, there's a couple of things there. Um, if you get, life is very dangerous and, and, um, and it, almost everything will kill you and it's harsh and very unpleasant, except for like, one or two trees that you sit under by like, you know, a small pool of water where there's this sort of, this idea of an oasis is really psychologically compelling, right? It's this, mm -hmm. this place in this really hostile world. So it's like there is not much medicine or not much sucker in, in a very harsh and dry world. But more than that, when the sun goes down, because I've been out under the stars in the desert, more than that, when the sun goes down, you actually realize that the universe is not how it plays out during the day. So you, the, it's cool. In fact, it's cold at night. Um, so you do need to be aware of that. But you and the fires and the infinite stars yeah. of an evening. So that, that association with when you die, it is night. And night in the desert is just one of the most beautiful things. But during the day, if you get life wrong, if you stray a little, you will die. And there just aren't that many places for, for sucker. So it's just like Gnosticism is is a desert song. It's just what it is. You know, I think it's it's really well said. And the desert is the place of Seth, the great trickster. That's where Satan takes Jesus to test him, to make him into a god. So, and also mirages, sure right? Like it's this idea that it's there's literally this this hostile place is is beset with illusions. And you think, mm -hmm. of course, Gnosticism is a desert song in the same way perspectivism or whatever is a, is an Amazonian song. 
No, makes perfect sense. And again, for the audience, there's so many cool gems that Gordon puts in his book. Uh, here's another one you call synchronicity omen logic. I loved it. Can you explain more? Because again, and obviously, I'm sure Jung was never static. I'm sure he would have loved people to develop because he changed, you know, he evolved his ideas of synchronicity and archetypes and then, exactly. you know, time stopped and he had to go. So I'm sure exactly. he would love synchromysticism. He would love synchromysticism, but omen logic. So omen logic is a term I've, I used first when I was teaching tarot course to premium members uh, at runesoup.com. And it actually emerged from something. I added the logic to it based on a conversation about tarot I was having with Chris Knowles, like a private one, where he sort of said the logic of how tarot works is not in universe. And he meant that obviously being having a career in comics. He meant that in a comic book sense. But I really liked that. I really liked the idea of like the logic of how tarot works is not in universe. And so omen logic is, is a deliberate phrasing of synchronicity to demonstrate that there is an intelligence behind it. So like the Terence McKenna thing of like, why is the universe story shaped? Like why does narrative describe reality? That's weird. That it, you know, in, in a materialist scientific framework, it shouldn't. It should not, like the universe should not be shaped like a story, but it is. And so omen logic is when you have, so you're going to go, oh, that's a bit of a synchronicity. It allows you to, it, it's almost creepier in a good way. Like it almost like creeps you into taking it, taking the fact that there is an intelligence of some kind, even if it's part of yours that you're not in relation to behind it. And so omen logic is, and once you do that, you take the next step, which is, languaging it so it's omen logic to omen language which is once you see it that way once you see it as kind of like semaphore with your own unconscious then you rather than just going like oh weird i was just thinking about you and you rang and we all get you know dozens and dozens of them over the course of a year but you can actually dance with it you can actually start to it's trying to speak to you you're trying to speak to it um, it's turning a friendly face to the unconscious. But if you, if you, it's a spell. If you use the right word, uh, it works better. And, and omen logic is one of those for me, I think, because it's not synchronicity's fault, but they're just, there's not that much tread left on those tires, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's been used, it's, it's done a lot of heavy lifting in the 20th century. And I think in an animist world, I, I'm just more explicit, like, yeah, I'm an animist. I think the universe, I literally think the universe is a rainforest, like metaphorically, that's what I think it is. Like spirits are real, omen logic. Um, even if it's just, even if it gives people permission, personal permission to like just move that little bit weirder, just step a little bit weirder, then that's what terms like this can be good for. Step at the edge of town. And speaking of language, I also like how, uh, and you quote how forest things by Eduardo Kahn, and he talks about we must deprovincialize language. The world is mm -hmm. full of language, and we must learn their language, right? I mean, and of course, you talk about the greatest example is John D. He wasn't, he had to learn the language of the angels, it wasn't like he had to demand that they speak English or something like that. Yeah, it's, um, that's an amazing book. It's it's it, it's a bit complex. I'll do I'll do an okay job. I think I'll try my best of uh, putting this across. So, the study of languages 
various terms, so like linguistics and etymology and whatever. Um, the study of languages predates anthropology by about 150 years, eh, 100 to 150 years. So what happens? And we and we we built our study of languages, linguistics, on the study of our own language. So basically, the the root words of English and German. Um, that we got from some kind of like Eurasian civilization, right? Mm -hmm. And and that turns out to be unusual in its structure compared to human languages, like almost unique. And so when once we built this, it's like, okay, this is how languages work. Then we go and study other languages and like, well, Chinese doesn't work like this, right? Or, or whatever. Um, and then it gets even weirder when we... So we built this idea of language that this is the deprovincialized part that's based on not just a human understanding of what language is, but like a specific collection of humans understanding of what language is. And then we look out into the more than human world, aka nature, and we don't see it. They don't have the globe theater. They don't have, you know, any of the stuff that we say. And so we say language doesn't exist in nature. Animals don't have a language. They don't communicate. And so this book, uh, and it's based on um, Dr. Cohn, who's a Canadian uh, Canadian anthropologist. It's based on his years of work in in Amazonia, um, among the Avalaruna in particular. It's he learned how they understood the language of the forest, and so um, the forest, hence how forests like speak, how forests how forests think, is is its own communication field and is communicating. And the human capacity to do things like use metaphor and symbolic language isn't the norm. It's the exception. And, and it's the, the exception on the planet, like on a biomass basis, like we think, well, I mean, we are wrecking the place, but we think we're like there by mass, there are more earthworms than humans on the planet. Like there you, if you put in like some giant um, scale, the earthworms on one side and the humans on the other, there are more earthworms. Like and that's too, I think. And yeah, that's where we are. Right. And so we are even on a biomass basis, abnormal and a minority and when you open up that that's what he means by deprovincializing so when you open up and democratize language to something that living systems and living beings do you suddenly see them for what they are but you change your understanding of of what humans are in relation to that so there's been a very it was a cornerstone book in my adult development maybe about a decade or so ago like it was life-changing and and it's so good for people who are like in magic because the magical implications hence why it's a magic book are like stark frankly and yeah and for yeah for the audience that is uh eduardo con how forest things and magic if somebody says well gordon how is this a book about magic what is your answer well because it is a um it is a collection of beings uh, that you can come into relation with. So it's not about magic. It is magic. Um, that's how it's a magic book. Uh, and that was actually quite challenging <laughs> to do, consequently. It's it's a lot easier to just give people little recipes. Um, maybe I'll do that with a third of the dot books. But it had to be, rather than describe the animist universe, it had to live in it. Uh, and so it is a collection of beings. And I kind of say that at the beginning, like telling, asking people to read it in unusual places because each chapter emerged out of my relation to a specific place. Uh, and so 
I want that to happen to, <laughs> to when people, uh, for when people read it as well, because that's how it's a magic book. It, it's a it's a sharing of beings. I would say so too. What's like Philip K. Dick said that Nag Hammadi Library wasn't information, didn't contain information. It was living information. I would say yeah. the same thing too. It's something yeah. you experience. You're saying you, you know you have to experience these things. Like you talked about, uh, McKenna said you don't ex you don't try to understand the world. You experience the world, and this is a book you want people to experience. I experienced it from your, you know. There are times when I'm sitting outside, like, God, how would I feel if I was driving my little Peugeot with occult books through fire and trying to <laughs> get people to do a magic spell before my house is destroyed? <laughs> There's all these events. Are you coming to Santiago and like getting off the plane and going, Holy shit, look at the Andes? I mean, yeah. I've seen the Andes when I was a kid, and it's like, Yeah, you see giants, <laughs> you really see what gi the giants, yeah. yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. So, uh, it's a wonderful book in the in so many respects. Uh, Vance, any questions from the audience? Yeah, we've got a few. Um, let's see. Um, DW the Wild Beat wants to know what's the healthiest ratio of mystics dash animist to doomsday prepper for us to aim for during the next eighteen months. <laughs> That's a good so question. It, <laughs> it is. It is, but and and it's kind of top of mind for me at the moment because I'm completing a presentation about how we understand time in in a living universe right because what implied in that question is a metaphysics of time which is we can't really know the future uh, but we can scenario plan right and that's you should be scenario planning anyway but you actually can come into relation with the future like that's what divination and and all the rest of it is so um it's it's a question of like re-presencing yourself because it'll be different for you d depending on what your context is. And there are techniques and there, there have been for millennia of going into ceremony and being present with that future and also pulling in, pulling in futures that are less final, <laughs> I guess, on an individual basis. So I like the question, but it's actually, um, well, what's 18 months? Like, do you think the future is fixed? Um, it kind of, like, the future is alive, so it's not necessarily fixed, but you can come into relation and see bits uh, and adjust. But on a, like um, a lot it is, is the other side of that. Like I want to give you real advice as well as like go and learn time magic. Is <laughs> it, it gets like, it, it, it gets bad. Um, so a lot <laughs> uh, is, is the answer to that question. So um, if, you, if you fancy a holiday, come to Mexico now. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. Gordon providing a way to chemically change our thinking and very existences. As mentioned in the intro, and as a bonus for all subscribers, beyond the second part of the interview, I'll include my past interview with Gordon on Starships, the perfect bookmark and compliment for this interview. So please become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon or Red Circle subscriber for the full dope. And to support this Red Pill Cafeteria. It will cost you less than a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever in this Philip K. Dick world. And you just must accept we ain't ever going back to any old normal. 
This is our time, we high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.